Welcome to Podcast Palestine, The War on Gaza, a special podcast from the Cairo Review of Global Affairs, where we talk to policymakers, experts, and academics about how the war in the Gaza Strip is unfolding and the prospects of a political endgame. I'm Nadine Shaker. The United Nations estimates that 1.9 million people, about 80% of Gaza's population, have been displaced by the war. For almost all Palestinians, this strongly evokes the Nakba. When they were forced to flee their homeland in 1948, following the creation of the State of Israel, leaving behind their homes, their properties, and their land, many expected to return within weeks, but they never did. There are strong fears that Palestinians in Gaza will join the 7 million Palestinian refugees in the diaspora. A prospect which my previous guest, journalist Nur Swirki, told me would be a complete nightmare for them. However, in what ways can we think about the current war as a remaking of the 1948 Nakba? What are the perils and what are some of the major differences? especially in light of Israel's ongoing strategy of expulsion of Gaza's population. Today we hear from someone whose family survived the Nakba. I am joined by Sharif al-Musa, Professor Emeritus at the American University in Cairo and a Palestinian poet. This interview was recorded on December 13th, 2023. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts right now as a Palestinian seeing the situation unfold in Gaza. I know when we corresponded weeks back, we had sort of diverging feelings. I thought there was a ray of hope and you said there was no bright spot to be spotted in the news. I believe that's what you said. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you still feel the same way and how how are you seeing the situation on the ground? Well, I think, you know, this is a very strange uh, moment, a very ironic moment. Uh, it's what you might think of as like unstable equilibrium. We could go up or down, I feel, because on the one hand, <clears throat> the, the Palestinian question uh, has unprecedented support globally, uh, regionally, everywhere. Uh, the, the Palestinian question has been re-centered as a question of a liberation of a colonized people. And that's how it is being perceived now by many people around the world. It is also re-centered diplomatically. After mm -hmm. almost, you know, we were fading, actually, from the news, from everywhere. Uh, and we uh, were under the threat of becoming just, you know, a, a matter of uh, people who are looking for economic uh, betterment. So this is a, a big shift and a big recentering, and it's a very important moment. On the other hand, because of all the death and destruction, uh, and the destruction of public institutions and buildings and hospitals, etc. Uh, uh, the looting, the humiliation, everything, the internal displacement. We are very worried now, and many people are very worried about another forced expulsion, like 1948, that keeps haunting us, the specter of 
expulsion always haunted the Palestinians because the Israelis never really uh, abandoned uh, this idea. And you have Gaza, and if you look at the West Bank, the same specter is there. Uh, but, you know, mm. So we are worried about for Gaza first and then uh, the West Bank, and will be basically if you know there are these two huge expulsions. What are you know we we are lost again, mm. and uh, we will start from the beginning, but not from inside, which is you know becomes really hard, uh, much harder. And uh, so th there is a moment you could win and you could really lose terribly. Uh, and that is what I'm saying, you know, kind of like we are at a peak and uh, in in the abyss, kind of, mm. uh, of, of, of uh, our being as, as a nation, you know, as, as, as a people. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot to follow up on. Uh, but speaking of winning, uh, yesterday we've had a little bit of interesting news coming from the UNGA. Uh, voting overwhelmingly in favor of a humanitarian ceasefire. And yeah. although it's non-binding, but as you say, it depicts a global show of support for ending the war. So I did want to ask you, what do you think this means for the U.S. and Israel? Do you think they might shift their perspective? Well, you know, this is like a very absurd, really, situation. You have the strongest regional power, partnering with the strongest uh, nation in the world, the empire, really, uh, against this very small, you know, 2.2 million people in 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 a 350 kilometer square of space. It, it is mm. totally absurd. The gap in power, the gap in abilities, and fighting all this time. I mean, the U.S. has been supplying them, you know, without calculation, uh, without even behind uh, violating probably their own laws, you know, uh, going behind their Congress to supply them with the most devastating uh, weapons and missiles and everything. Israel does not seem, you know, uh, to be really, I mean, from what you read, there may be some people who are beginning to cast doubt about the possibility. And you know, there are always kind of a few people around who don't really like war, who don't think that war is uh, the way to go. But, but I think it seems like the Israeli public uh, has been mobilized you know, to basically to go for it, and the 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 generals. I mean, you see Gallant and all these, uh, and Netanyahu, and it looks like you know they have been hit by uh, a case of bloodlust. They really want to kill, and this is what they are doing. Yeah. And uh, so I don't really know. The U.S. Uh, Biden, you know, almost kind of you feel like he is. Uh, he he is uh, an Israeli, you know, rather than uh, an American president. Almost uh, just <laughs> has been totally deaf to to all the calls. I mean, there have been even his interns, you know, the young young thirty young interns sent him a letter for a ceasefire. 
he did not listen his uh, uh, party members uh, uh, all the polls tell him people want a ceasefire and he has been totally oblivious uh, to to these uh, mm. calls i don't want him you know i don't care he, for you know that he sympathizes with the, with the palestinians or to to talk about us and i don't need his uh, his uh, sympathy but i want him to stop the us actually now and israel both kind of are what i call uh, in, in the pit of pariah states if you look at the uh, united nations as you mentioned uh, uh, resolution you know the majority of uh, really great majority uh, only uh, uh, the us and eight other states uh, voted against it. And then the US was the only country that opposed, vetoed, of course, the uh, UN security resolution for a ceasefire. And that is really, you know, a pariah state. This is what you call a pariah state. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the language, extreme language of expulsion used by Israeli ministers. And uh, I think the other day or a few days ago, the IDF published a map of Gaza with it divided into blocks, 2,300 blocks. And then um, they said that they're going to target one block after the other and ask residents to move from one block to another before they hit that block. But the whole point uh, or you know this map really struck me as very brutal and yeah. just showed the methodological calculated approach of this war plan and while a lot of analysts have been saying you know Israel's end game isn't clear um it's not clear what they want out of this war but i did want to ask you going back to this question of expulsion what you know that does this type of plan this type of you know complete uh, carpet bombing of Gaza um, tell us about Israel's military strategy and is this erasure part of its policy of expulsion well it, it is obvious this is what they uh, want you know in in 1948 first you know they they expelled people uh, they expelled us you know my family uh, included 758,000 people. You know, we were a small population then. And then people still, you know, kind of after uh, refugees always kind of uh, think they will uh, return, they will go back, and people thought they will return. So in order to, you know, uh, to eliminate any thought in, in, in people's mind that they were returned, they destroyed their villages. Mm. Uh, they destroyed our villages. I, I actually, I did uh, write in the book called that, All That Remain. I wrote the history of all the villages at the time, 418 villages that were destroyed. Yeah. And now, you know, there are about, they say, 500 uh, villages uh, that were destroyed. And these villages were, you know, like some of them existed from 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, uh, and suddenly, whoops, you know, nothing is left. Uh, they were bulldozed, they were 
uh, level, they were, their names, they changed everything. Israel, kind of what I call sometimes, is a designer state, really. Kind of like, you know, borders, everything had to be planned and done. And uh, if you look at the plans, I mean, they, I think this plan, it was ridiculed, this map. Yeah, I mean, you are talking about uh, about block by block. No one can understand it. I looked at it. Uh, what is this? You know, who is going to really? And what they want to show is how accurate they are, because the U.S. has been telling them, oh, they have to be surgical, surgical strikes. Uh, it is all really like a, a theater of the absurd, you know. Yeah. Where is the surgical strike? It is all wanton destruction. I don't see any uh, surgicality in it. That's true. I mean, even even if we look at, uh, you know, you were saying they're trying to be surgical, but then there's the whole myth around uh, safety evacuation so zones and safety zones, which basically doesn't exist. There's no place that is safe in Gaza. Yeah, all the UN, I mean, all the humanitarian actors there, the organizations, they all said there is no safe place in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, the, the UN Secretary General said this. You know, everybody says there is no safe place in Gaza. And people say they just moved, you know, out of desperation. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, you've mentioned the Nakba a few times, and a lot of people have made parallels between the Nakba and what's happening today in Gaza. Um, and our first uh, episode, uh, I don't know if you've listened to it, but uh, Raja Khalidi said that uh, Palestinians were being Nakbatized. Um, and I thought that was <laughs> interesting. Um, I, I wanted to ask you if you can compare sort of or tell us what are the perils between 1948 and today and whether um you know the extreme brutality level of brutality that we're seeing today how does it compare to nakba what happens to palestinian national uh, aspirations you know because with the nakba even though it was horrible but we've seen a lot of resistance after that uh, you know the imagery of the nakba was always always reverberated in palestinian collective consciousness and it sort of had this long-term good ripple effect i think how do you see perils between both in your mind well, first of all, I mean, Israel in 1948 always kind of like hid, you know, their intentions about uh, about forcing people out because they were still unsure of themselves there. You know, they were still irregular um, uh, militias and uh, gangs and, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So they hit everything. Even after the state was established, I mean, we have been saying that it was all done by force. They expelled people. There were all these massacres there. But Israel for a long time insisted that it was the Arab armies, you know, in '48 that told us to, to, to leave. And of course, that remained until the 80s when then their archives began to open up and historians found out that actually there were all these plans and they went through it village by village, place by place, day by day. And now it has been established that it was all planned uh, ethnic cleansing. Now, 
been Greer and Smotrich, you know, the, those uh, fundamentalist cabinet members, both of them threatened us with the Nakba. And Netanyahu had kind of one time suggested they go to Egypt, you know, people go to Egypt. And then, oh no, he had a, a cabinet member preparing uh, a plan for Europe. Uh, not everybody, but, you know, many people to go to Europe. So these are now kind of more really uh, public. Of course, you know, the level of armament then, they didn't have the same destructive power. So they didn't really, there wasn't as many people killed or as many houses destroyed until later on. The houses were all bulldozed afterward, uh, but they didn't have the same firepower. So the destruction was much less that way. And they also, you know, there were many places that were kept and they also actually, I mean, in, in, in the village where I was born, it is still there. Many houses are, are there and people who know it when they go, they recognize, you know, my mother recognized our house, our uncle's house, everything. Wow. Yeah, so they are there. And who lives there? I saw a picture in, in one of the books uh, of, a, of a Moroccan Jewish family, you know, with their bags coming to our village. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so they did not destroy everything, uh, but they lived in it and they expelled uh, people. And this has been a long, you know, part of the Zionist thought. They never said where their borders are, never. If you ask Israel, where, where are your borders? The, the only country that does not or the only state that does not have border, actually, or says this, these are uh, our borders. And they never, they never, I don't think they never entertained a Palestinian state or a coexistence with the Palestinians. That's really um, sad when you say that Israelis um, never believe or conceive that there could be a Palestinian state. And I think this is, it makes it clear what their goal, at least for me in Gaza is. You know, the more you empty the land of Palestinians, the harder it becomes for you to do anything about uh, achieving your liberation or liberty or what uh, self-determination or whatever you want to call that. So that is the thing. Uh, they want to send us out. Uh, you know, they can't expel everybody, and over time there'll be more people, but but still, but that weakens, at least, you know, because their next target is the West Bank, as you can see. I mean, they are, uh, everybody is talking about settler violence, but actually uh, this only kind of to make us forget about army violence. Army violence is much more serious, and and widespread and and devastating than settler violence. And anyway, settler violence is sponsored by the army too. So I was today listening to a journalist, a Palestinian journalist talk, and she said that she does not recognize her neighborhood anymore. She doesn't, uh, you know, she doesn't recognize her house, the cafes next to her house, like simply it's all gone. Um, I, this is in Gaza. You in are Gaza, talking, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, like it just brings up the question: What do we do when, like, physical, you know, the physical landscape dissipates and it's not? 
you know, is not there anymore. And I wanted to read out something from your own experience of displacement and expulsion, uh, especially something you'd written in Jadaleya about coming back to Al Karama refugee camp as an adult and seeing what had happened to it. And you wrote, it was utterly desolate landscape framed by the United Nations scattered decaying buildings. All had been melted into dusty air by Israel's erasure machine. The houses were all gone. The whitewashed mud brick walls did not purr when we lived in them and perhaps had already looked like ruins to outsiders. But they sheltered the private pleasures and agonies of many families and stood as testimony and symbol of our expulsion in 1948. So I did want to ask you for Gazans who might possibly in the future be returning to the land they've been expelled from and not remembering it exactly in the same way because it's been erased. How do they reconcile with that? What would place mean in that case? Yeah, no, it it is really hard. A place is 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 kind of like has many uh, many different meanings and many different uh, ramifications and many different ways of uh, seeing and living and thinking about it. And everything, all the houses were destroyed, the, the, the residential areas. The only thing that was left was the UN, you know, ironic. <laughs> the underworlds. Yeah, the United Nations, because that's who was our godfather, I guess, you know, the UN. Well, now this is what, you know, the UN is really the, you know, next to Hamas, they are the governors of Gaza <laughs> because they, they provide everything. So, but but I, there, there was the street still, the main street in, in the camp. And uh, I, you know, I, of course, I have a good memory of where, where who was there, who, and uh, our house was here, and these were our neighbors uh, on this side and that side. And then, you know, as you walk, I knew all the streets. It wasn't a, a large camp. It was 5,000 people. And it was all organized, you know, like in a grid, which I, you know, of course, when you live there, you, you take it for granted. So sometimes it takes uh, going elsewhere to understand your own uh, place. So it, but it stays in your memory, you know, the houses all were demolished, except uh, we, we went to the school, you know, with, uh, I, I had my two kids and a friend of mine had two, his two kids with him and they were still young. And we went to the uh, underwear school, you know, that so this was my, not my elementary school, but my uh, preparatory school, you know, like seventh grade uh, to, to ninth grade. So the kids went in and you know they went to the classroom and they came out and they said oh yeah we the we found the the blackboard and the chalks and we wrote on the on the board and my son was uh you know really still young and he said uh to me he said I really like that going under into the classroom he said did you do that every day so, but I felt, you know, I felt like, you know, my life 
for a second was complete here. They went to the same place. They went to the same classroom. It was yeah, it was a good uh, in its way, own way. It was a satisfying moment, you know. Thank you for listening to Podcast Palestine, The War on Gaza, and to my guest, Sharif Al Musa. This episode was produced by myself and by the Cairo Review's Deputy Senior Editor, Omar Auf. Let us know what you thought of this episode and share your feedback with us on social media. You can find a transcript of this interview on our website. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Salam. <laughs>